3: On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America.
0: I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime
4: podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And
0: you're listening to Stop the Killing. Well, welcome back to this bonus episode of Stop the Killing, which today is part three of the debate that Catherine took part in that was hosted by Joffe Emergency Services. And this is no surprise, Catherine was defending the Run-Hide Fight Corner with Dr. Jacqueline Schildkraut defending the Lockdown Corner. Now, because this was a live webinar, there was plenty of time at the end of the debate for listener questions. And honestly, there are some great questions in there that I hadn't heard or even thought Thought to ask before that, I am sure if you've listened to part one and part two, will be on the tip of your tongue as well. Things like what do you do if you've got a child who you can't keep quiet during a drill for whatever reason? Well, let's find out and dive into part three of the debate Run, Hide, Fight versus Lockdown. We have had a
1: ton of questions come in. So I will do my best to highlight and combine some of these questions on similar topics. So the first one is, how do you recommend we drill in a run, hide, fight scenario with small children? Should we be teaching different methods based on the ages of our students? Yeah, I think think that's
4: a question for me. So I suggest that you look at the way that they train in the uh, Jeffco school system. They train all the way down to kindergarten in Jeffco, which is Jefferson County schools where Columbine is. They've had five school shootings there, last I counted. Their focus is on training the smallest kids to follow directions and to listen to the adults around them and to practice what it's like to move around, whether it's, as I mentioned before, through the windows, out the windows in the gym, or through the back doors in the classroom. If kids have never been through a back door in a classroom, but you have them there, they're less inclined to go there. So I think for little kids, it's just more a question of having them be familiar with the potential routes if they need to go someplace. That's the added part to the run part, because I think you're, you're not teaching a five or a seven year old to fight. And in, in fact, a nine year old might say they're going to fight and you want to tell them
5: that's not their job. It's interesting that you mentioned Jeffco because Jeffco is actually also an SRP district. And so I think that that's really important is that these are not mutually exclusive concepts. And so you can use something like the standard response protocol from the LW Guys Foundation to establish your all-hazards response plan while still acknowledging, okay, we may need other options. So I think that's also, to go back to your earlier question like two hours ago, a misconception
1: Our next question is, if we have a student who is triggered by the lockdown and we cannot keep them quiet, what do we do? Especially if we have other kids in the room, we're trying
5: to keep safe. Yeah, you know, that is a really important question. And I think that that's where it's, if you know that you're going to have students who maybe are more sensitive to some of the things that go on, like students who maybe don't like it when the lights are off, one of the most important parts that we didn't really get to touch on about doing these drills is the importance of pre-planning and having a multidisciplinary safety team to help with that planning. And part of that should be your school psychologists, school social workers. Um, So if you have students who are more sensitive to stimuli, then you want to go ahead and kind of see what you can do. We had several students in a district, not Syracuse, in another district that we worked with that had special emotional needs. And so I walked into this room as I was checking it, they've all got headphones on with an iPad and they were completely fine. They didn't care the lights were off. They didn't care what was going on around them. And so I think pre-planning for that as much as you can is beneficial. You know, things don't go perfect every single drill. And so if a student has an adverse reaction, you do the best that you can to help them in that moment. And then, you know, certainly get them the assistance that they need after the drill, but find out what triggered them in the first place and put a plan into place for them for the next drill.
4: Yeah. And I would just add to that, that You know, um, parents, oh my gosh, please engage the parents in this. The parents, uh, even if they're going to be a little bit more neurotic about it, the parents know what their kids, maybe they think their kids can or cannot do. And you should be notifying the parents when you're running uh, any kind of uh, of safety drills. And you probably necessarily don't when it comes to fire drills and the kids come home and say, what did you do today? We ran a fire drill. We ran an active shooter drill. You're, you should be notifying and engaging the parents as best you can. And the parents can tell you coping mechanisms. Um, that they, and because again, teachers have dealt with uh, students who have high, um, you know, high responses to things, but also from a traumatic standpoint, it's not just a child who maybe has a special need or a child who can't deal with a light out. They, remember that you could have a child who is in a house that has dealt with uh, a shooting death in their household, uh, a gunfight in their household, domestic violence, and you're not necessarily, that's not going to be evidenced until you see a child who is reacting in a way that you don't necessarily think they they want to react. So that's a that's a communication with the teachers and in the, the training and the teachers to have the teachers look for that. And that's the pre-planning that you have to say. Look for these concerns because you don't want to add to a child's trauma by running a drill. Well, that is
1: actually a perfect segue into the next question, because someone was asking, how do you balance the needs of the parents, those who are afraid that you'll scare their children, those who don't know a school procedure, etc.? How do you make that balance work?
5: You know, I think it's so important that you have to recognize that everybody is a part of this puzzle. Right. And so, um, you know, one of the things and I don't want to keep tooting the I love you guys foundations horn, but one of the things that I really love about their program is that they include parent resources. So when we started our project, parent handouts went home. We held open training sessions for the parents so they could come and learn the protocol that their students would be learning. Uh, communication is key. And the more the information and communication that you can give to parents, I think the easier it is to tamp down some of that anxiety. Because again, they're going to pass that anxiety to the kids.
4: Yeah. And and the uh, there's nothing wrong with talking about safety and security to the parents at every opportunity that's a great thing. Your parents should know what kind of training you have going on. The kids shouldn't be coming home saying, yeah, we did this because then the parents' anxiety goes up. So I think that if you engage the parents first it's to say, hey, we're going to talk about the training that we have in our district. This is what we do. I was sitting through training. It was at elementary school and we invited the parents to come too because we're looking at what are we going to adopt nationally, right? And I said to the parents, well, did you know that you're in, your second grader was going to be able to speak so casually about an active shooter drill? And, you know, some of the parents were like, no, nah, I had no idea they were. And that was early on. Those are the early days, right? And the parents said, it makes me feel better to know that they're not all freaked out about it. And they've been learning this for years in school.
6: That I think, you know, we've, we talk a lot about building confidence among our communities and every touch point that we can create with parents to come back to safety and security, to your point, um, is a useful one, but also the last touch point, the last time you checked in with with parents is going to be the time they, they hearken back to when an incident happens on our campus or somewhere in the country. And so one of the goals I would encourage folks to think about, and it doesn't have to be a formal town hall meeting every time, right? That may be appropriate in some environments, um, but if you haven't communicated something about safety and security in the last 90 days, this is a call to do it. And then to make sure that you uphold that pattern. And in some communities, it's more like every 30 days. In some communities, one of my favorite uh, uh, strategies for parent communication is in the the go-home flyers, right? If there's a Friday flyer that goes out in backpacks, it's a little square on the bottom of the flyer that says... This week, we did this about safety and security. Yeah, if you
4: normalize safety. If you normalize safety as part of the process, and I think that's really important. I worked with this company that I thought this was brilliant, and and it's something that I heard years ago, and I really push it now, is that at the beginning of a staff meeting, spend five minutes on a pre-planned discussion about safety, whatever it is. If you did that at every meeting, then people would be more accustomed to the idea of what safety and security is.
2: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BDW. void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
0: Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it? Well, stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this. Tickets that not only look, but feel like the real deal because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy to use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements, or parties? Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to StubForge.com. Start creating today and see how StubForge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit StubForge.com and start making tickets today. Do you
1: both agree on the other emergency responses, like evacuate, shelter in place, hold and secure campus? Is this the only drill and response you disagree on?
5: Probably. You know, I I work with a program that's all hazards. So we prepare for all five of those things. And part of the reason we chose to go the route we did um, is because the state of New York, which is where I live and and work, requires schools to be prepared for all five of those things. So as I like to say, I didn't reinvent the wheel. I just slapped a better poster and some training on it um, that wasn't even mine. So I, I think broadly, I agree with those things. I'll just speak for myself. I don't disagree that there is value in Renhide fight. I don't want to suggest that I do. I just think having spent as much time as I have with tiny little humans and they're learning, I just think that some of the options maybe shouldn't be prioritized as much. Should we still talk to them about those options? Absolutely. But I think, you know, I, as a researcher, I, I go where the evidence shows and it's the door lock.
4: Yeah, and I, I'll tell you, I don't disagree with the door lock, and I think I've tried to make that point is that absolutely the locked door is great, but you know if if you're in a situation where you don't have a locked door, you can jump behind. They have to know instead of freezing, they have to know what else to do, and that's the thing that I felt that we were missing. And, but your question, I think, really dealt with what about the other methods? And I think I'm going to go back to the point that I, I tried to make before, and clearly didn't very artfully make, is that these methods are all teaching kind of the same thing. So if you're an organization, if you're a school district where you've paid a lot of school district money to do the XYZ training and now you feel like, oh my gosh, now we have to throw all that away and we have to do some other training. My answer to that it, it personally is like, no. I mean, I had a big budget when I was with the FBI and I counted every dime that I spent because it's your tax dollars, right? Thank you. So um, <laughs> that was my job, right? So, you know, don't retrain uh, for a different name. Think about what kind of training you have and make sure that you're training for all hazards and make part of that all hazards be this type of training. Because we don't train kids to stay in a building when it On fire. We train them to leave. How do we train them to leave? You know, we don't train kids to stay on the playground when the tornado comes through, right? So it is an all-hazard situation. And whether it's a different name, it's not the name that we're attaching to it as much as it is the actions and the training. Has COVID
1: changed your opinion on how we address school lockdowns? We're
6: connected to about two thousand schools that we've been supporting through COVID since March sixth of twenty twenty. We held our first webinar, and, and we've held something like. 150 or 200 webinars since then so many webinars um <laughs> but uh but one of the things that our community of schools has experienced and and this may not be true of the greater community of schools so I want to anchor in that feel free to, to to name it if I'm if I'm off here um, but our community of schools has experienced an increased number of threats of violence and acts of violence on campus and we've seen an increased number of um I mean, maybe the story is the best way to say this. So I've I've come into contact with more educators than I can count that have said, I've been an educator for 30 years, and I've never in my experience had as many events occur as I have since X. And X is somewhere between two weeks ago and two years ago. And so my take is, to me at least, there's no fundamental shift in how we move to lockdown, how we move to run, hide fight, how we respond when an incident occurs. However, I am seeing a significantly larger number of events that we need to respond to. And so I'll just offer that as some foundation and experience that many of the schools on the call likely have. And, and please add to that challenge that.
5: Yeah, I agree with you, Kate. I you know, I guess I'll say it like this, you know, to ground it in what we're both experts on, which is mass shootings. One of the things we know about mass shooters is they plan. They don't wake up on Tuesday morning and say, I'm just going to go shoot up my school, right? They plan and they plan and they plan. And you know, I remember back actually in March of 2020 when CBS News, that's where I saw it, it was multiple places said, oh my gosh, this is great. It's the first March in 20 years we haven't had a school shooting. And I'm like, no fooling. No one's at school. That's why you it's opportunity. There's no opportunity. There's no crime. And so what the pandemic did is it it removed social structure from students that had that and support in school. and it gave them time. To plan. So from our perspective, we actually never stopped doing the drills. The state of New York never suspended the requirements to do those four lockdown drills a year. We didn't stop running them for the schools once they were back in in-person learning. We figured out how to modify them to be COVID safe because you always want to deal with the immediate threat while still preparing for the other threats. But no, absolutely. I, I agree with Kate. We should have never suspended it because the threat was always still present.
1: These next two questions are similar, but I want to read them both and let each of you respond. To clarify, if kids are outside during an event, is it better to re-enter the building and be behind locked doors, assuming it is readily available, or flee to a neighborhood and or woods? And also, is the recommendation that they run away from a building or run into a lockable
5: space? If one of the things that we talk about with lockdown is where your threat is, that's the difference between a lockout secure and a lockdown with a lockout, secure your threats outside, with a lockdown, your threats inside. We absolutely, and I know you're going to agree with me, don't go back in the building if the threat's in the building. Um, Where you run to is a discussion that you should have within your community with families and all of these other things. But no, you should absolutely not go back in the building if you're outside. You're safer outside than you are inside.
4: Yeah. And I think that this is where community counts, right? Do you, if you're in a school district, Who's watching your building? Where are the kids evacuating to? Do you know the businesses around you or the structures around you, the church around you, you know, packing facility next to you, which would be happy to take in every kid if the kids needed to flee there. I, I lived in the, through the FBI world of a law enforcement world of bomb threats in buildings. And when a bomb threat comes in, You have to evacuate the school someplace. So if you don't have a connection with your school's surroundings, that's something that you can fix. So find that. And that's something that you can tell the kids. You tell the kids, as we tell on Stranger Danger when they're walking to school, what do you do if somebody approaches you? You run to a safe adult, run inside, knock on somebody's house and ask to go inside. That's what you want to do. There's zero reason to ever tell the child who's on a playground to return to the school.
5: See, we agree on a we'll lot more. more. It could happen. Yeah. I've seen people come in during drugs.
1: <laughs> I feel like these principles target neurotypical individuals and in thinking, how do these principles help children and adults with learning disabilities or on the spectrum like autism?
4: I think that, you know, there's no question that, that the, the difference in the way that you have to train and talk about these, we as a federal government adopting run, hide, fight had the same conversation with HHS, as you can imagine, about what they dealt with on how do you run, run, hide, fight in a hospital where people are in an operating room, right? So obviously, nobody's leaving the operating room. So the FBI was part of the federal government's push after Sandy Hook to release the high quality guides to creating emergency operations plans. So I would ask you to look that up, how to develop high quality guides to emergency operations planning. It's endorsed by all the federal agencies. And we put annexes in there that specifically talk about uh, ADA issues and special needs issues, in part because we knew that they came up in hospitals. There's a high quality guide for businesses, hospitals, churches, houses of worship, and schools. A specific one that we were ordered to direct first was the one for schools. Look it up. It'll be in there, I think.
5: One thing I just want to go back to really quick is it. this is why it's so important to have that multidisciplinary safety team, the people who have the training and the expertise to handle people with social emotional learning needs. I will also add that there is a great program out there from Safe and Sound Schools called Especially Safe that helps schools to yeah. be able to work through this for individuals with those types of needs.
6: Well, I want to take a moment and I give each of you about 30 seconds to do a quick wrap up final thoughts. If there was one thing or three things or or 30 things, if you can get through it in 30 seconds, that you want schools to go do today after they leave this session, what would it be? Kate, I'll start with you.
4: I would want you to go on to NC2, the number two S, uh, NC2S, the National Center for School Safety, which I'm part of out of University of Michigan. It's uh, federally funded. And their goal in the National Center for School Safety is to put together the latest research. The latest data and to provide trauma informed training, to provide best practices for, for school resource officers. And they do it through webinars, they do it through a tremendous amount of available free online training. So, National Center for School Safety, NC2S.org. Thank you. I'm glad somebody knows my, my I just, site. I did their lockdown training. It's a really, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff on there. And if you don't know where to look, it's a great
5: place to start. And I would kind of just say, I think the most important thing is start, right? We can't continue to not have these conversations. We can't do what I like to affectionately, not so affectionately call ostrich syndrome and stick your head in the sand. Because frankly, if you had asked me on February 13th of 2018, if I ever thought a mass shooting was happening in our community, I would have laughed at you. And then the next day I would have been eating a lot of crow. And so I think the most important thing is start. And if you don't know where to start, start with places like and. uh, and NCTS, I actually did a training for them and I'm like, what is it? Start there. Start at schoolsafety.gov. Look at the research right. and follow the evidence. Because one of the things that I have learned is after one of these events happens like Uvalde, and I know that we're all on such heightened emotional waves right now with Uvalde, you know, for good reason, everybody becomes an expert. And the reality is, is that not everybody's an expert. So follow the evidence, start today and don't be afraid to have the conversations because the more that we continue to put it off, the more we're caught with our guards down. And I guess the final thing I would say, and we've kind of touched upon this, please don't ever say it could never happen here. Because the minute you do that, you drop your guard and you become complacent. We don't have to live in fear, but we do have to be prepared. And so that's where practice always makes progress.